0: When we try to understand what the end is, the reality is we need to understand what the beginning is first. Because for a lot of us, we have this thing called a recency bias. It's this unconscious bias that we have that those things that are newer are better. So those people who have learned stuff recently know more than those people who've learned stuff in the past. And one of the challenges of a recency bias, and this is kind of like a cultural reality for most of us, one of the challenges is when it comes to the Bible, recency doesn't mean accuracy. And in fact, it's the opposite. More than anything, we need to be looking back to understand what the Bible means today. And so when we're talking about this big picture that has an ending, we need to fully understand the beginning and what it meant for those original people who heard it, learned it, believed it. And only then can we see what it means for us today. And so when it comes to the big picture about the end, we need to see the big picture about the beginning and how that all fits together. So in the book of Genesis, we talked about this many weeks ago, if you were listening or maybe it was recent for you because you were listening or watching on demand. We talked a long time ago, it seems, about how God in the beginning created everything. He brought order out of chaos and said it was good. All of creation was good. It was his. And that he wasn't a God like other gods who meddled in people's lives, but he cared for the creation he made. And then in Genesis chapter 2, there becomes a story about the Garden of Eden. And in it, it says this, The Lord had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man that he had formed. The Lord God had made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you're familiar with these scriptures, you know that what ends up happening to these first people, and it isn't necessarily like a science book saying this is how we originated, really it is more of a philosophical document that helps us understand how things went wrong. And so these first people, Adam and Eve, were invited to care for this good creation God had made. And in this invitation, it was very simple. They were to be stewards, caretakers, managers of all that God made to keep it good. And they only had one rule besides care for stuff. And that was, don't eat from this one tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And when we're familiar with the story, we know that they were tempted to eat by a serpent, a creature that was not in line with what God was doing. And as they are tempted, Eve is is tempted by the serpent and said, hey, it's not going to be as bad as you think. And she and her partner, Adam, eat. And their eyes are opened, and they're ashamed of their nakedness. And everything falls apart. And God says that because of them, because of the decision they made not to follow this one simple rule, this, this clear guideline to say, hey, be in step with what I invite you to. It's God's pretty simple rule. He says, because you didn't do that, now everything is a mess. Sin enters the picture. And sin is about the missing of the mark, missing the point, the direction, the, the practice of what God invites us into. It's not always just something we do, it becomes someone we are when we continuously move away from what God has said is best. And in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, God shows the people and says to the people, because you did this, the whole earth is cursed. And it'd be very easy for the story to end there. Things were good, people messed up, God says, I give up. But it doesn't. Throughout the Old Testament, there are multiple times where a specific word comes up, covenant. It is a relational promise God makes with his people. It's not just a contract that says, you do these things, I do these things. But it is a built-in relationship that looks for the good of the other. And in Genesis chapter 12, God speaks to a man named Abram. And he says to him that he will be blessed, that God will bless him. And he, in turn, because he is blessed, will be a blessing to many nations, many people. And because he is blessing others, they will know God. And throughout the Old Testament, we're in this big picture. From the beginning, God is trying to show how he cares for the creation he made. All of it. All of it. And so as that keeps unfolding, we see how people don't do what God invited them to. They're not keeping up their part of the covenant, their agreement. They end up choosing their own ways. They worship other gods. They are selfish. They're, they're, they just look for their own gain, their own wealth, their own prosperity, and not think about others or God. And God sends people to try and draw them back to him, and he allows them to experience pain and suffering and sorrow because they choose to walk away from him and worship other gods. And in all of that, he always comes back if they want him to. And he always rescues them. But he never removes them from their situations. And we keep following this pattern of people being in a bad situation, calling out to God, then the situation gets better and then they forget about God and then it gets into a bad situation so they call on God and back and forth and back and forth over and over again. And so, as this big picture is unfolding, starting at the beginning where everything is good, and God invites people, and there is a tree of life, not just a tree of a garden of good and knowledge of good and evil, but a tree of life that gives life and everything could be good. But people choose not to. And then God says, Hey, well, I've still got a promise to you. I still have this agreement with you. I still want to be in this relationship with you. And He keeps giving that opportunity until we get to this place where things things seem very far gone, but God steps into the picture in Jesus. He takes on flesh, becomes like us, not to just die on a cross, though he did die on a cross and rise again, and it changed everything, but to experience life in our way so that we could relate to him and he to us different than before. And he leads himself to that cross, And when Jesus dies on that cross, he takes on sin and death. That missing the mark that we've done for so long, that missing out on the goodness that God has for us, the life in its fullness that Jesus says he came to bring. And he takes all that on and relieves us of it. And through the cross, he demonstrates that the death he died wasn't final. He rises again. And on Easter, we celebrate that the one who was on the cross rose again. And when he appeared to his followers, when some of the first people saw him, like Mary, she thought he was a gardener, a gardener in John's gospel. And he tells her who he is. She's aware of it and needs to tell everyone. And the whole story shifts and changes. God sends himself in the person of Jesus. And when Jesus is to leave, he says, I will remain with you in the Holy Spirit to empower, to embody, to embolden you, to be witnesses of the reality of this covenant, of this promise that comes to its fullness in Jesus, the one who people thought was a gardener. And from there, that empowerment of the Holy Spirit creates the church where you and me and all of us make up this unique family across the globe who are to be reflections of this covenant until the end. So we get to the end. So when we think of the whole big picture that starts in a garden, everything's good. There is a tree in this garden that is of life. And then the story unfolds. Things don't always go the way they're supposed to, but God keeps his promise, his relational promise with us. And he demonstrates that in himself, in Jesus, who was thought to be a gardener. Starts in a gardener, somewhere in the middle, someone starts with a garden, somewhere in the middle, there's a gardener, and then we get to the end. So let's read the end. A lot of us. We have this idea of the end, as we kind of alluded to before. We have this idea of how things are going to unfold. And because we have this idea, we sometimes actually miss out on what is really there about this topic. Most of us get our understanding of what happens at the end, not from Scripture, but from what other people say about Scripture and what people have put into films and books that have sold millions of copies. Most of us have this idea that's actually much more recent than we realize about how and what the end looks like. Most of us have this conclusion that the world is going to be wiped out, that all that's bad, that's evil is gone, which isn't all wrong. That those who are bad and evil sinners, they will be cast out to hell, which isn't All wrong. And in a few weeks, we're going to actually talk about that more specifically about what the Bible says about that. And we have this picture that those who are righteous, those who are Christians, those who are part of that covenant community are kind of sucked up into the air to avoid any suffering as the world ends. And then God keeps us in heaven where He is king and He reigns. And there's different variations of this, but usually it kind of falls around some kind of pattern like this. And the truth is, actually, that belief, that idea, is really new. That's not what the early church believed. In fact, it's not what the church believed for centuries. For centuries, they had a very different picture as to what the end was going to be. But in the last 200 years, deeply influenced by American theology— Most of the world has adopted this idea of the end times where there's destruction raining down from sky and everybody's suffering except for the Christians who've been sucked away to be with God. Which doesn't actually line up with that whole big picture. Where yes, God rescues, but he never removes his people from suffering. And in fact, he says that suffering will produce perseverance and perseverance will produce hope in us. And because we have hope, we're never going to be disappointed. But for some of us, we've adopted this idea. And because it became so popular, especially in American theology, and the reality is is that American theology has influenced the world in great ways, sometimes good, not so good sometimes as well. And this evangelical American theology has has based it that, you know, the Christians are the ones who are good, they're going to get taken away, and those who are bad are going to be left behind and suffer. But that picture really isn't the picture that comes up in Scripture. And I'm not going to get into all details of it, but I want to look at some specifics of one of those sections of Scripture that talks about the end that sometimes we're really confused about. And in our confusion, we kind of just go with what we've most recently heard, that this is what it looks like. This is the end. But again, it's not necessarily what the early church or even Jesus taught. Now, we need to understand something. In the early church, especially the writers of the letters in the early church, the apostles, people like Peter, people like Paul, even James, most of them thought that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. For them, the idea of the end was when Jesus returns. And so they had this idea, and if you read through Paul's letters, you see early on he talks about it quite a bit. That Jesus is going to come back and they're going to, it's, it's going to be everything made right again. And as the letters go on, as time goes on, you see him drop that idea because he realizes it's not likely in his lifetime. But those early church leaders thought, many of them, that it would happen in their lifetime. That this idea of the end was coming and it was coming soon. But because they thought it was happening doesn't mean that's what Scripture actually taught. And the truth is that most generations since then have thought that the end is coming somewhere in their time. And you don't have to look far. In our generation, it happens all the time. In the 1980s, there was a specific date listed by someone saying, this is when the world will end. When that date passed, that person reproduced their book, changing that date at a later date. When that day passed, they reproduced their book again with a different date. And I think they did it a fourth time where they left the date out. I think they learned on the first, fourth try. But we've had people for years trying to say, this is how it's going to happen and this is when it's going to happen. And just a few years ago, there was someone who predicted in, I think it was 2011 or 2012 that it would, would end. And then there was one just even more recent where there was a, a pastor who said it was going to end. And it didn't. It just didn't. Because that's not what it's about. Because when we take Scripture... In its isolation, we can make it say whatever we want. But when we look at the big picture, it helps us understand what it's really about. So the big picture starts with everything's good. God creates it. He invites us to partner with him. He puts a tree in a garden. That is life. We choose the wrong tree to participate with in the knowledge of good and evil, and everything becomes a mess. Jesus, who dies and rises again, is thought of as a gardener and invites us back into this renewed life with God in a way that we'd never had before because we kept making the wrong choice. And then we jump ahead to Revelation chapter 21. In Revelation chapter 21, John, who's given this vision, has this picture of what the end looks like. And those of us who've read Revelation before, we know it can be a little bit confusing. And I hold to a certain belief that a lot of it actually isn't about the future. A lot of it is about a reality that John was going through and it was written in a style with a purpose to reach that audience. I hold a view which is called partial preterist, meaning a lot of stuff has happened, but not all of it. And some of it's about the future, but not all of it. Because I believe that the book of Revelation was written to a people in a time for a purpose. And I'm just a secondhand audience who gets to learn from it. So John is given this vision by God. And in this vision, he sees this at the end of the vision. Revelation 21 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, You will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. When we read this, we can easily go, okay, this is exactly uh, what Rob said. Some people believe that it's a new thing, all new thing, like everything's wiped out and there's this new thing. But when we read it just at a surface level, just taking it, kind of looking at the word saying, this is what it says we actually miss out on what it actually says. The words that get used are a callback to a moment in time. And that moment was Genesis 2, when there was a garden and everything was good. In fact, the wholeness of John's vision is continuously bringing people back to the knowledge, the understanding that they are in a relationship, a covenant agreement with God. And that God is with them, even in their struggle. But let's look at these first few lines. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And so most of us would think, okay, so that means a new heaven and a new earth. It's, it's right there. But there's something we need to know about that word new. There's two words that get used for new in the New Testament. One of those words means like new as in it's a time frame, like it's it's brand new. You know, it's that new phone or that new car or whatever. And there's another word, it's the word that gets used here, that's not so much a newness as in uh, like the timeline or the quantity, like it's brand new, but a newness in quality, like a refreshing, like it's different than what was there before. Because the reality is, I believe that what was there before was what God wanted all along. But in between, we made a mistake. And so God is bringing back things the way they were always supposed to be. We were always supposed to be always with God. That God's dwelling place was with people. In the story of Adam and Eve, we see that God is walking around the garden, is the language that gets used. In here, it says that God's dwelling place is, is with people, that he is there. In between, we saw people building temples, saying this is where God's going to be, and that when we want to be with God, we've got to go to the temple. And later on, we saw that we, as people in the New Testament, are told we're temples of God, temples of the Holy Spirit, that God is with us always. God's plan was always to be with his people, always with his people. And we moved away from it, but he is bringing it back anew, refreshed. It is new in quality, and that quality calls back to what was originally. It's not all new. It's what was always meant to be. And so he says that he gets this vision that this new heaven and new earth are, are coming because the old has passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And the language of sea is important because for a Jewish person who would been the majority of the people reading, they understood the sea as actually a chaotic, evil place. So it's not actually about this body of water. It's about the chaos and evil that exists. That in this new place, there is no chaos and evil. That it is good. God is with his people. And His new place is like the old place we were always meant to be in. We're going to jump ahead because there's a lot there, but we're going to jump ahead into chapter 22. And the vision continues. It says, the angel showed me, the river, the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit yieldings, fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will be not need to be light for a lamp or light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. And if we take it as a face value, just I read it off the page, we're saying, okay, there's no sun, there's no moon, there's no night. That's not what he's talking about. Again, it's more of a figurative language that his audience would have understood. Because it would call back to what was always meant to be, that God would be with his people. That that tree with the river flowing was there. He's actually taking an image from a prophecy that Ezekiel has. That from the temple, from where God is, flows a river that brings life along the sides of it. He's reminding the people of the promises God has always had. The end is the fullness of the promise God has always given his people to be with him, to be blessed, and to be a blessing to others. The end isn't about a destruction, but a renewal. In fact, Jesus says it himself in Matthew's gospel. He says, at the renewal of all things, when they're asking about what's going to happen the renewal, not at the end of all things, at the destruction of all things, but the renewal of all things, when things are made right finally, in this life where we've been toiling away, wanting it to be better, but it's not, in this reality where we see sin for what it is, and it is pain, it is suffering, it is sorrow, God says there is going to come a day when things are made right. It's not for you to know that day, You're just to know what's going to happen. It's the hope you can hold on to. And God gives us this picture as a gift throughout Old Testament prophets, through the words of Jesus at the renewal of all things, through John's apocalyptic vision, which means unveiling or moving the curtain away so you see what really is. It doesn't mean the end as some people think it does now. Apocalypse is revealing. That's what it means. And so John is getting this revealing from God about what was always meant to be, how it's supposed to be. God is with his people. The covenant, the promise, the big picture comes all together. That's the end. The end isn't destruction for everybody. It isn't isn't the world kind of blowing up and saying, hey, we're done with this place, so we don't care. In fact, The end has to do with this place called earth. In the same way that specifically the word cosmos gets used for world, when it says God so loved the world, cosmos meaning all of creation, God still cares for that good creation. And God's always going to care for it. But the ground is cursed because of people. Things are not right. And so God invites us over and over again to step back into that initial promise, that initial invitation to be the gardeners, to be the ones who care for his creation, humans, animals, plants, oxygen, everything, just to care for what he's made. And in the end, it basically says like, hey, as you've been caring for all that's made, it's going to come afresh because ultimately it's God who will bring the fullness of that renewal when he comes to be with us. Not us go far away, but he comes to us in a new, fresh heaven and earth. It's the remolding, the remodeling, the renewal of what already was. In the New Testament, there's an understanding that you and I, when we come to be followers of Jesus, Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians, that we are new creations, that in Christ we our old is gone and our new is here. But you and I, we still have our reality. We're still our humanness in this new creation. In the same way, in this new heaven and new earth, it is still very much heaven and earth, sky and land and water and everything. It's just what it's always been meant to be. It is renewed. It is restored. It is new in a freshness, not in a timeline of saying, let's get rid of the old. It's making things right. This matters because when we look at the big picture of scripture that starts with things good, ends up with things bad, somewhere in the middle, there's someone who's thought of as a gardener who restores that right relationship with people and God so that we could start doing what is right again. And then it ends in a garden where that tree of life is, and it gives the fullness of life to everything. Everything. It matters because when we think about the end, it's going to affect how we live today. If you have a view that the end is just, you know, God's going to destroy this earth so it doesn't matter, chances are you do not care very much about fossil fuels. Chances are you don't actually really care much about recycling. In fact, you might not even care very much about poverty or, or about racial reconciliation or all those things because you're saying, hey, this world's going to get wiped out and we're going to end up somewhere better and none of those things are going to be a problem anymore. And while maybe you've got that right idea, like those things are not gonna be a problem anymore for the future, but when we have this view, when we have this, this understanding of thinking like, hey, everything's gonna be new, we can get rid of what's old, who cares about what is right now? We take for granted what God said was good and what he gave us. And in fact, we actually miss out on what he's promised and invited us to do, which is care for his good creation, to be in partnership with him. And when we choose not to be in partnership with him, when we exploit his land, when we don't care about other people, when we we do things for personal gain, we in fact are not living in the covenant promise he gave us. We're not keeping up our end of the bargain. And so when we have this view of the end, our present is not what God wants. But when we have a view of the end, that actually, what God's actually going to do isn't going to be like just to destroy everything that's now, but actually to bring it afresh, to restore it, to renew it to what it's always been meant to be. When we have that view, we go, hey, what I do now matters. So why would I hurt what he said was good? Why would I choose to ignore global warming or something? Why would I choose not to recycle? Why would I choose not to work towards reconciliation between people who have pain and suffering and sorrow? Why would I choose not to do those things when God's invited me to be in this covenant to bless others because he's blessed me in this good creation he made? How you view the end affects your present. What you believe about tomorrow will change how you act today. If you believe tomorrow everything could be burned up and gone, you won't care very much about what you do with it today. But if you can have a big picture that falls in line with what God has said all along in Scripture, that he is making things new, you can be a part of this good new creation now as well as in the future. What we believe of the future should affect how we live today. When we live today like tomorrow is a gift from God and we look forward to it. We will treat today as the gift from God it is. What do you believe about the end? Can you see if it makes a difference in how you choose to live or behave today? Is there anything that you maybe believe about the end that is different than what I shared today? And you're not actually sure why you believe it. Do you know why you believe what you believe about the end? We have all kinds of different views. And I'm not trying to tell you your views are wrong. But what I want to invite you to do is to examine them. Do they line up with the big picture story? Do they actually fit in with what God's been saying all along? Or are they something different? No story no story is a good story if the end makes no sense compared to the rest of the story. And in our belief system, in our faith, we need to wonder does what I believe about the end reflect everything else? The Apostle Paul, when he wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, when he tried to remind them about who they were and what they believed, he ends it by talking about the resurrection. That we as people aren't going to be disembodied spirits when we die, but we will be embodied, resurrected people. That Jesus was the first example of this. And at the end of chapter 15, when he's speaking about this, he's speaking about the end, he says this. He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Give yourself fully to what God has invited you to participate and to do to be because what you do today is not in vain in the end. What you do today matters for tomorrow and for eternity, even if you don't See it. How we care for each other, how we love God's creation and care for it, that will make a difference in the end. I don't know what that difference will be. I don't know how it all works. But I believe what Paul says that what you do today will not be in vain. So recycle that can, drive a little less, plant a garden. Because what you do today for this creation that God says has been groaning and waiting for the children of God to be revealed, as Paul speaks in the book of Romans, is waiting for you to be revealed. Because in the end, God will make everything right. He will bring it afresh. But until then, we need to live as people who have the end in mind and an end that is so good, we want to see it today. What will you do today that will not be in vain, that will demonstrate that your view of the end, God's view of the end, is so good, you want everyone to participate in it? Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are the God of creation, that you said when you created everything out of out of disorder and chaos that it was ordered and good. And that you want that creation to be good. You want us to be good. You want, you know, the trees, the air, the water, the ground to be good. And you invite us to care for it. Heavenly Father, I know I don't know all there is to know about the end. I haven't been there. And I just know what I can know by your guidance, Holy Spirit, and by studying your scriptures, God. And I pray that as I study them, as we study them, that we have our hearts and our minds open to what you really want to show us to be true. And Father, I pray that as I share today about what the end might be, that it's not so much a destruction but a renewal, that our hearts and minds can be open to see by the power of your Holy Spirit what is true and to live accordingly because of it. I thank you that you are a big picture God, that, you know, we are not just existing in isolation and we're not just learning in isolation or being or loving in isolation, that you are with us always. And it is a vision that spans eternity and we just get to play a part in it. I'm so grateful for that. And I pray that we today see our part that, Holy Spirit, you guide us to know that our labor is not in vain, that whatever you invite us into today, God, will make a difference for tomorrow and eternity, even if we don't know exactly how it works. And I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.